1: Well, hello,
2: gentlemen. Of course, it's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. And uh, now we're Foursquare because uh, we have a special guest with us today, Dick Healing. And I'm going to let John introduce Dick. But uh, it's always good to see uh, the other
3: detectives on the show. So how you doing today, Todd? Oh, can't complain. It's, it's above freezing for a change here in Boston. <laughs> well, I'm glad it is.
2: It's 65 degrees out here in Colorado. So
3: John?
4: This is my condolences to you because I escaped along the road and it's like mid
3: 70s so I'm enjoying my temperature. Oh my gosh. And Dick I
2: think you're digging out of snow in Virginia aren't you? I'm
3: in Delaware right now. Oh
2: you're in Delaware
0: so you got to be digging out
2: of snow there a little bit.
0: Just came in from Denver and landed in a big snowstorm at Dulles airport.
2: There you go. Good. You get your aerobic exercise, uh, shoveling snow. <laughs> well, gentlemen, today we're going to um, we're going to dissect an accident that happened back in 2002, involving Senator Wellstone. Um, at the time, it got a news play because of, of course, who was on board: Senator Wellstone and his entourage, uh, because they were in the midst of a uh, a campaign stump, and uh, being up in Minnesota they were using a private charter company to fly the candidate around so that they could uh, go out there and do their campaigning. And John and I have talked about this in the past on, on other shows, I've brought this up in other forums with regard to vetting charter operators, because over the past 30 years, 35 plus years, there has been this issue about these charter companies that are popping up, of course, brokers, brokering charter companies that really have no business chartering, you know, or performing uh, services for hire. And then of course we have a real big problem right now with 134 and a half or what we refer to as 134 and a half where you have people holding themselves out for hire that don't hold a former air carrier or formal air carrier certificate issued by the FAA. So, you know, using that as the premise I'm going to start with, uh, with of course, uh, just a little discussion about this particular accident.
4: Greg, yeah. you sold just you sold us short a little bit because both of you and I have done together and separately vetting of shot operators for high net worth individuals. Yes, and, we have, and, and, and there's a number of charter companies that don't like to see either one of us coming <laughs> because we do, we do kick over every. Rock. We take a good look at this, their pilots, their backgrounds, their records, and uh, the the overall operation of the company. So uh, it's not rocket science, really. It's just a lot of due diligence on the subjects that have caused accidents in the past around the pilots and around the operational control. And none other than Jim Reason, a rather famous human performance, human-factor person, out of the U.K. uh, has talked extensively, written books about the organizational defects in accidents called operational accidents. And uh, we still see them here in the U.S. over and over again, even though accidents like this high-profile one involving a a U.S. senator uh, made a big ripple, but it didn't lead to any positive changes in the industry.
2: And you bring up a good point, John. And again, Um, We go in there with a little different methodology when we uh, start dissecting an organization, because we're trying to establish a baseline, of course, try and find their deficiencies and help the company correct those deficiencies. But, uh, you know, (laughs) that's not necessarily our responsibility, other than the fact that if they are a charter company, where's the FAA, because the FAA is supposed to be the overseer and enforcer of those types of regulations and you and I have definitely seen a number of regulatory non-compliances when we've gone into organizations. And of course, the other part of that is that some of these audits that are done, and I won't mention all these names because I don't want to get a bunch of hate mail, but I've seen all of the deficiencies in these so-called audit companies that go in and supposedly audit these organizations. I've seen no, I mean, just a number of deficiencies. And, And it's sad because they're more process audits than actual functional audits, and they don't really get to the heart of the problem or really the root cause of potential accidents and serious incidents. Um, before we get going on, on this, I want you to introduce uh, Dick and uh, and just give us a little background and, and why he's on the show today.
4: Dick Healing has been a friend for a long time, but and you know, a colleague in safety, and he really drove a very large number and very substantial safety improvements for the us navy and us marine corps and uh, he gets a lot of accolades for that he did an outstanding job there and as a result of that he was able to get himself as a board member in the national transportation safety board and we served together for just briefly on the board but uh, it was a pleasure having him there and we we would always dig through the issues and reach out to knowledgeable people to uh that maybe weren't involved with the issue and getting uh, as much information as possible and for that we both got in trouble internally
2: (laughs) yeah well i'm glad you guys got in trouble because again it's all about accountability and uh, and holding, you know, whether it was me as an in- investigator at the safety board or the staff holding us accountable to make sure that we had developed all the facts, conditions, and circumstances, and identified all of those issues that were needed to be identified so that safety recommendations could be made to enhance aviation safety because that is really one of multiple premises of the agency, and that is to identify deficiencies and whether or not they're systemic or isolated is to try and find what the corrective proper corrective actions should be so we're glad to have you on the show dick and of course um you were a board member along with john when uh when this accident occurred and and so i'm glad to have both you and john and your your board perspective in this particular investigation
0: well thank you it's an honor to be with you guys thank you
2: well um, as, uh, as many people in aviation know, when this accident occurred back in 2002, um, there was a charter company that uh, had flown Senator Wellstone around on multiple occasions. And in particular, this pilot who was involved in the accident, the captain on this particular flight, had supposedly flown Senator Wellstone around, and they, they actually liked him because the captain was a personable type guy. Um, But on this particular day, it was uh, an accident that occurred uh, in late October of uh, 2002. It was uh, in the morning, and the airplane was uh, taking off and heading to Elevinth, Virginia Municipal Airport in uh, Evelynth, Minnesota. And uh, it was uh, the two pilots, the senator and his entourage that were uh, heading to a, a campaign stump. Um, There were a number of operational issues that were developed by the NTSB about this accident. Um, There were some uh, real questionable issues with the pilots' backgrounds, both pilots, which we'll get into. But uh, these pilots were taking off. They had delayed the flight. Initially, the captain had gotten up early, was checking the weather. The weather was kind of marginal. And at one point, uh, it was believed that they were going to cancel the flight. But then miraculously the weather at destination supposedly cleared up enough so that the flight could be conducted Um, it was a scramble to get the airplane going again because they were going to delay it till later in the afternoon but then retracted that and decided to go out uh, in the morning once that was done of course the question is what changed what changed with the weather what changed with the crew and did that put any kind of pressure on this flight crew to conduct a flight? And those are always questions, especially with a charter flight, only because when you have a charter flight, you have somebody, you have a paying customer, it is, let's accomplish the mission. And we've seen a number of accidents in the past. There was an 18 fatal Gulfstream Stream 3 that crashed in Aspen, Colorado for those very reasons where the guy who was paying the bill was literally up in the cockpit telling this crew, you will get me to Aspen, we're not going to plan B, if you will. So the question of course is, is there any kind of pressure? It didn't appear to be based on the facts that were developed by the board. But again, there wasn't a lot of information about that. Was this critical to be done that particular day? Nonetheless-
4: There was was one piece, there was one piece that struck out to me in this the uh, captain of the airplane around nine o'clock in the morning uh, repeatedly tried to get the chief pilot and the director of operations. He was able to get a secretary who worked in dispatch, but he couldn't get his bosses, presumably, he was looking to to uh, talk about whether or not to take this flight, given the weather conditions, so I, I mean he I think he tried to get out of get out of this flight but the pressure from the senator and the entourage, whose staff was calling him repeatedly during the same period of time. So he was getting that pressure that you just mentioned uh, from the customer, if you will, and, and the entire entourage. And he had no one above him answering the phone.
0: Yeah, there's it's no called. question that uh, you know when you get a VIP on there, uh, the pilots tend to bring pressure on themselves to complete the mission, go back to 1996 and the Ron Brown crash with yep. an Air Force crew, T-43, and uh, some terrible uh, failures of navigation aids and other procedures, and nobody knows what was going on. In this particular case, uh, what John just said is is true. The chief pilot was uh, not available, I guess. And the result of that was uh the the pilot wanted he he knew that wellstone was an uneasy or uncomfortable flyer. Yeah. So he wanted to he wanted to complete the mission, he wanted to give them assurance. He apparently uh got another another pilot who had just come from that area to basically talk to Wellstone uh about well, the flying conditions are really not that bad. So if It was obviously on his mind. No question about that.
3: Yep, and 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 before we go on, I'd like to point out one thing about this. Uh, The viewers, some of them might think, well, this is a US Senator. Uh, Ron Brown, who you just mentioned, he was on an Air Force uh, aircraft. Why wasn't uh, Senator Wellstone on a military or government aircraft? Simply put, as you stated earlier, this was not government business. This was a campaign trip. And although for someone as high profile as a president, campaign trips are made on military aircraft, for the most part, if you're a politician, state or federal, and you're doing something that's not related to government business, you have to uh, go on the market like everybody else.
2: Yep. And, and, and when, you, when you look at that and what Dick brought up and John brought up, and that is we have seen that this joint decision making has come into existence, especially through the airlines, because if we go back to Air Florida, Palm 90 that took off out of Washington National with ice on the wings. They stalled the airplane, hit the 14th Street Bridge. One of the things that came out of that was, of course, that the captain was making a unilateral decision about operating in that environment, de icing the airplane, and a variety of other things. Now there's this joint decision making. That is, if there are some questionable issues, you want the DO, the director of operations, or the chief pilot in the mix in that discussion so that you, as the pilot, are making a joint decision, either through dispatch, DO, or chief pilot, and rather than just making this unilateral decision. So it like you both described, yes, he was trying apparently to do the right thing, get that second opinion. When he couldn't get anybody, he ended up making the decision, and that decision was to attempt to go. Now, the flight apparently en route was okay. Everything was uneventful. They were gonna shoot a non-precision VOR approach, into Evelyn, Minnesota, and again, it wasn't one of those dark and stormy, oh my God, type nights uh, or mornings. But the weather was low, and uh, and it was up to the crew to fly the approach. Now, air traffic control did keep them high on the approach. They uh, they they ended up getting into, I think, a bit of a workload issue, but uh, they did get on track because they initially overshot the uh, the final approach. Uh, course going in, but we're able to recover to that um, and then we're on their way down now again here you have an airplane that's a single pilot uh, capable airplane it was an a 100 so it was a very early model King air. It can be flown single pilot, but you have two pilots on this because the company procedure was you would have two pilots on a chartered flight so now you have a pilot flying you have a pilot not flying that pilot not flying or the pilot monitoring is that non-flying pilot calling air speeds calling altitudes doing all of those non-flying things reading checklists talking on the radio but as we'll talk about here in in a little bit we'll talk about some of the policies and procedures of that company and these two particular pilots the fact is is that the bottom line of this accident was as they were flying the approach they were basically diving and driving to get the airplane down On the approach they pulled the power back apparently neither one of the pilots was monitoring airspeed they allowed the airspeed to get dangerously low to the point where the airplane got into an aerodynamic stall. By the time that stall regime was recognized it was too late, of course, the airplane in an aerodynamic stall will roll over which it did and because of their low altitude, uh, they were unable to recover airplane crashed and, of course. Um, these eight people were killed. Now, they weren't killed instantaneously. There was evidence to suggest that three of the people did survive and died in the post-crash fire. Um, But again, it was one of those sad accidents. Now the question is, how do you have two pilots flying an airplane, especially on a non-precision approach, where it does take a lot of attention by both pilots The pilot flying, of course, to make sure that they fly the approach properly on schedule, on speed, in configuration. And of course, the pilot monitoring to make sure that the pilot flying is doing all those things and then assisting, calling out airspeeds, altitudes, and that kind of thing, since it was a non-precision approach. Who was at home paying attention to the airspeed or not paying attention to the airspeed in this particular instance? Well, the board then got into a lot of the issues with regard to pilot background. And if we start with that, the captain had a questionable background to begin with. He had been flying, he he got his ratings and certificates, but then got out of flying for a period of time, about five years. Unfortunately, during that five year period, he got into some legal trouble. And in fact, ended up spending time in a federal prison for mail fraud and wire fraud. And when you look at that period of time where that, uh, that uh, prison time occurred, when he got out, he was still on, on probation, he ended up deciding he wanted to go into, uh, into professional flying and got recurrent, if you will, with uh, flights in small single engine general aviation airplanes, and then applied to this charter company, um, Aviation Charter Inc., and was accepted not only as a pilot, but as a captain. And according to the interview information that the board dug up, they, they brought him on as a captain because of his quote experience. But as it was found out, this captain or this pilot was keeping double sets of logbooks. There were a lot of questions about his flight time, uh, especially carryover time from a logbook that he lost. And so there were a lot of questions about his history. One of the things that I was concerned with that I never saw anybody discuss is the fact that the FAA didn't revoke at least this captain's ATP certificate because part of the ATP requirements, not a standard, a requirement of holding an ATP is that the pilot must be of good moral character. Well, going to federal prison for wire fraud and and, uh, and mail fraud I don't think it's a good moral character. Now there is guidance for the FAA to evaluate a pilot like that, but they never pulled that certificate. Yet there were other pilots in similar or in different situations who had a lot of their certificates revoked and, and had to spend a lot of time and money getting them back. So that's one issue. Then you have the co-pilot who only had about 700 hours of time before he came to this charter company. He, uh, he had gone to Northwest Airlines to get a job as a ground training instructor. Unfortunately, he washed out because, as the interviewees at Northwest said, he couldn't remember anything he learned as far as how to teach procedures to other pilots. They ended up washing him out of the program. He did go to another flight school as a ground instructor. It was not named in the report, but in further investigative digging, Um, I found out that it was Pan Am Flight Academy. Well, for those of you who remember Pan Am Flight Academy, they became very famous during 9-11 and the 9-11 event because this particular co-pilot did run across a guy whose last name was Musawi, And yes, it is the same Musawi who was involved in the 9-11 events. That doesn't show up in the report, whether or not it would have had any influence on the board in this accident is is really uh, not significant other than the fact that he was part of uh, that particular sequence at that period of time, but now you've got. uh, The ntsb who interviewed a number of pilots, including management at the Charter company who found out that these two pilots, both uh, while they were nice people they weren't necessarily top shelf when it came to their flying skills and abilities. And in fact, a lot of the pilots questioned their capabilities and competency. And I knew somebody that had flown at this company before, and they gave me a little bit of background and said, yeah, a lot of pilots did whatever they could not to fly with either one of these pilots, which is a telling statement. So if that's the case, and management knew, which is obvious based on the interview, interview information that the board had that they did know and they did have questionable issues with both pilots then why were these two pilots paired on this particular day to fly not just the senator wellstone but anybody under these conditions as professional pilots
3: and perfect perfect
4: scenario for an organizational accident where the organization was aware of it and you know maybe the senator. Uh, as you said like the pilot the captain on the airplane but they should have been more careful with the pairing and maybe that was a uh, part of the reason why the chief pilot and the director of operations were unavailable to for these pilots to contact them maybe and they were aware of those shortcomings and they didn't want to uh, hear them
2: and the board found that there were not only those types of Uh, of operational issues within the organization. There were training issues, there were oversight issues, there were manual issues. They were using manuals that weren't their manuals. They were using uh, manuals and checklists from flight training organizations, which you cannot do. And so the board developed a lot of that good information and all of the deficiencies with this company. And then went so far as to look at the FAA and find out what's going on with the FAA and their oversight and also found deficiencies with the FAA's oversight and their involvement and their approval of of a lot of these uh, policies and procedures set forth by this company. So now you have a company that basically has set up two weak pilots, set them up for an accident. You have the FAA who hasn't stepped in to really hold the the company accountable. The board finds this all out. They put it in these reports. It doesn't necessarily translate to the factual report. And then you get a very, very simplistic probable cause, which just floored me after reading all this information. The board comes up with a a simple one line uh, probable cause that of course, as you would expect, holds the, uh, the crew accountable. And that's as it should be. But again, you're talking about a probable cause that says these two pilots failed to monitor the airspeed, which resulted in the aircraft going into an aerodynamic stall at an altitude that was insufficient for recovery. Really? You didn't need to leave the office to figure that one out. Where is all of this information about the crew, their training, their policies, their procedures, their deficiencies? Where is the information about the company, their problems, their deficiencies, their policies, their procedures, their training that they didn't provide? Why isn't this in a cause or contributing factor statement? And where is the FAA in all this? The MTSB loves to bang on the FAA and they didn't see it. So with you two board members, my question to both of you is, as an investigator who used to have to forward a factual report upstairs to you all, for year review before we went to to final with it one how much trust do you put in the investigative staff that when you get that factual report you don't need to do your own investigation and two in this particular instance there was a lot of good stuff in the docket information that never translated to the factual
3: and as an outsider at the time i was working in a different part of the aviation but i was following this event very closely and I was waiting with bated breath for when the report came out. And I took it on faith that, hey, if this isn't the final report, these are the major things I found. This is a major thing to worry about. Now, in the years since, I've become a habit of mine. I look at all the uh, public docket information. I look for things that you know, might be boring, might be voluminous, but it might give me insights such as, oh, this stuff is really interesting in the docket. Why didn't it turn up in the final report? So my question to you two former board members, not just on this accident, but any others. If you see something that's fascinating, interesting, should be in the report, do you get internal pushback sometimes saying, no, we're not going to put it in or no, we'd rather put this in or no, we're going to outvote you two guys because you're always pains in our backsides. We want to put a different story out there.
4: That's my experience oftentimes. And Greg, you may remember that the uh, on the value jet accident, how much pushback i got from your boss and at the, at the board meeting i had to propose a change to the probable cause and uh, in fact I'll, I'll tell it right here that he said to me on the friday before the board meetings are always on tuesdays on the friday before the head of aviation safety said to me bring it up at the board meeting if you've got the balls yeah and i and i brought it up at the board meeting and the, my board members supported me and, and we we uh, passed that change yep. but that was the attitude the bureaucracy uh runs the board they are the board you'll hear them say that every now and then that they are the board and they they uh they they uh, spoon feed the board and I got in a lot of trouble by saying this with the general counsel and, and other board members but I, I firmly believe that as it became clearer and clearer over time how much they would manage up and by managing up, they would control the flow of information to the board members. And in talking to some of the board members after I left, including the chairman, and at the, one of the chairmen since I left, I, he admitted to me that that's was still going on. Uh, and I think that a, was a sorry state. Yeah, saying.
0: yeah, I think that, that was a uh, feeling. <laughs> we had. We had some issues that were going on internally at the board too, and that was, for example, when I got there uh, as a new board member, I sat alone in a fifteen hundred square foot office for six and a half months before I was able to hire anybody, because uh, there were there was a a freeze going on. It, it wasn't a it wasn't a freeze against hiring anybody. It was a freeze that was intended to. Uh, constrain, I think, to some degree, uh, what I could do. And, mm. and when I say that, I mean I didn't have anybody who could actually pull the, pull a docket and spend the time to go through the docket of an accident like this. John and I collaborated on several occasions where uh, where there was a questionable issue that we that we looked we both looked at and said something is is going wrong here so we were questioning the staff of the ntsb and and to some degree that put them on the other side of a a table from us where they were they were not too pleased with some of the things that we were finding and and basically forcing them to uh either add something or take another look at something uh that, that had been in the report in this particular case though um you know to be honest i don't remember that many details, but I, but I did notice uh, that in in the recommendations that they made that, that they missed something that was extremely important, and something that I am sure I must have had something to do with, which is the, uh, the fact is that this airplane had no cockpit voice recorder, it's, it's, it's uh, an aircraft that's put out for charter service. uh, And they're flying a VIP There's no cockpit voice recorder, no flight data recorder. And the recommendations that were made that were not included in the final report uh, were for a video recorder. We would have fully understood, if we had that, we would have fully understood exactly what was going on between those two people who were marginally (laughs) acceptable, at least at some level. But when you put them both in the same cockpit at the same time, uh, you know, it, it obviously turned out to be deadly. Yeah. And when you look at it uh, like
2: that, Dick, you, you talk about the fact that there was either a level of complacency, distraction, um, lack of procedural discipline, you know, a variety of different things. And that isn't something that just happened on that day in that flight.
0: Well, that, I mean, that goes right to the the some of the issues that uh, came out about the fact that uh, the chief pilot was not available for, for this uh, pilot to talk to uh the obvious um acceptance of a level of performance that was marginal and in some cases uh you know uh, not not uh not acceptable really for the for example for the atp uh rating but you know when you really you add all these things up uh there were, there were several things that they probably, they may have not, not have been taking, they apparently did not pay attention to the weaknesses of pairing two people, both of whom were known to be deficient in certain skill levels. And, uh, you know, it, it just doesn't make sense. And it's uh, interesting you bring
2: that up as far as uh, the crew pairing, because the board hammered that point back in 1987 when we had a Continental Airlines DC-9 that crashed out here in Denver. Continental 1713, where you had a uh, newly minted captain, Um, he he was a 100-hour captain, if you will, paired with a brand new, a relatively new first officer, and they talked about that crew pairing, and the board has nailed these issues over and over and over again. Why didn't they develop that more? Why wasn't that an issue that was brought up in the bottom line, especially when it came to probable cause, causal factors, and things like that? These are important issues that were never really developed. They went to the obvious cause. Okay, both
0: guys, you know, failed to monitor airspeed. Who cares? How,
3: yeah. how well, did I that think,
2: enhance aviation safety? <laughs> Greg,
0: I think that, uh, you know, there's, there was a, uh, I'm going to say it's almost a cultural issue at NTSB. And that was that, you know, when you're talking about a commercial plane like the the, uh, Del- uh, the Continental flight in Denver, uh, they they really focused on and they made a big point and a big push for crew pairing yep. uh, issues but they don't they don't deal with the the regionals of the, the 135s the uh, non-scheduled they don't deal with that they don't they don't take the information that they learned from the big crashes and apply them to the others in fact they they almost had an attitude that it was less important because there were fewer souls on board we don't yeah. We don't need to pay that much attention because there's only a few few people who die in this crash. I'm sorry. And it gets that, even
4: worse when you talk about general aviation, where you you got one, yeah. two, three, four people, and it, it really frustrates me. And I, well, I I still have the scars on my body for raising those issues when I was at the board and the pushback that I have got at the highest levels.
2: Yeah, it uh, it, it is. Uh, you know, it is disconcerting because, you know, for those of us who, who, you know, are still in the business, um, and, and we are all safety advocates and we start to dissect these accidents and yeah, hindsight is, is great, you know, after the fact, but these are not issues that you really had to dig into to try and understand and figure out. These were obvious at the time of the accident. Why weren't they developed further? Why weren't they discussed uh, more inclusively? And what really came out of this accident to enhance safety? Because if you, are, the whole mission of Axe Investigation is to enhance safety, not to just go out and kick 10, record what you got, throw some stuff in a docket and move on. And we see this all the time with general aviation accidents and the poor quality of the investigations. But and and every accident should be treated treated equally. That is, I don't care if it's a 747 or a J3 Cub, they all deserve the same level of investigative prowess, thorough and methodical, if you will. And and of course it's obvious that, you know, John and I have talked about (laughs) a lot of accidents over the years where that hasn't taken place. And that's a whole different story, but you're always trying to improve safety. I'm still looking for how did safety get improved with this accident?
0: I think the you probably you probably mentioned one of the very key things was that when they looked at the probable cause. Uh, the contributing factors there's no question that the contributing factors were uh, poor management practices or operational procedures by the operator itself, Now this is a. An operational uh, an operator that has a certificate that the FAA maintains oversight of that organization because they're they're carrying for commercial uh, purposes, uh, you know. And in this case, uh, it it bit them rather significantly. But but to fail to put a contributing cause in there that the that the operator uh, had extremely poor operational practices and and oversight of their own thing that of course that would probably point a finger back to the faa not having done an adequate job of inspection and oversight at the operator itself yeah
2: well gentlemen um we could probably go on for another half hour or longer about you know an accident like this Um, dick we're glad that you came on the show Uh, Again, you know, for our listeners and viewers, you know, our biggest thing is to try and not only educate and talk, you know, what happens behind the scenes, whether it's at the NTSB or other investigative authorities, but also talk about the backstories, stuff that you aren't going to read about in the report, stuff that is substantive to improving aviation and aviation safety that, you know, again, doesn't translate into a report like this one, where you have a very simplistic probable cause that really doesn't uh, educate anybody other than, okay, yeah, the board did some work on this, and they found all this stuff out. But what does that mean in the in the big picture? So we're glad to have your perspective, since uh, you were one of the board members, along with John. Um, a lot of people don't understand that process, that as an accident investigator working for the board where I was an IIC and I ran a team, we would put together a final report. You would just review that draft before the the meeting. You don't, you know, a lot, some of you two, I know because of uh, your background in aviation, you dug into a lot of stuff. You did take it upon yourself to get into the docket, look at all the information and compare and contrast. But the majority of board members that are coming up today and in the recent past, they don't do that. They just take it at face value of what comes before them in a draft factual report. And like you were talking about, it it's the staff spoon feeding them. Well, guess what? Um, we found a lot of deficiencies in these accidents. That's why John and I do this show and we dissect it. We talk about the issues that were never developed or should have been developed and talked about and things like that. So we appreciate you bringing your perspective to uh, to this accident and to our audience, um, so with that I'm going to wrap it up, and I'm going to start with you, Dick, for your last
0: comments. Okay. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for uh, bringing me into this circle. Uh, there's no question in my mind that we're all focused on the one thing, and that is if we can save one single life by some of the things that we do, it's it's a worthwhile exercise, and and uh, it's an honor to. Been associated with guys like my buddy, John Goliad, and with you, Greg, thank you so much.
2: Well, we appreciate you being here. You are now an anointed friend of the show and a flight safety detective. So expect us to be reaching out more and more, because we always need somebody that has a, a good perspective and somebody that can keep John in line besides me. <laughs> so, and Todd, I will leave you with some parting comments as well.
3: Well, thank you for that. And and thank you, Dick, for being with us today. And I hope that this is an example for everyone out there that here's an event almost 20 years old. We're still finding stuff. We're still digging. And we're still not satisfied. For those of you who are out there, you don't have to rely on the NTSB. You don't even have to rely on us. You have the tools at your fingertips 24-7 to go get the same raw data that we got. And if you have some inside sources, work those too. And for those of you who are enthusiasts, who put together your own analyses of recent accidents, however good or bad those analyses may be, keep digging. There's stuff out there, don't be lazy.
2: I like that. And uh, you will find a link to this particular accident on our website at Flight Safety Detective. So you can, uh, you can read this report. And like Todd said, you can take it next step and get into the docket material and actually read all the group chairman reports all the other information they collected on this particular accident, so you can get really the backstory. So with that, my friend, John, I will leave you, as I always do, with our
4: last words. Well, On behalf of my sponsors, PAMA, and especially Avenco Insurance, I would like to remind everybody of the following. If you're a pilot and you haven't flown lately, please, if you're gonna go flying, do a good pre-planning session before you even leave your house and when you get to the airport repeat most of it again and pre-plan your flight you go out to your airplane do a thorough and methodical pre-flight inspection not one of these two-step walk around that i see so many pilots do with the fbo uh, make sure you look and touch at your airplanes get a feel for how the flight controls move There's lots of things you can do. And then after you get in the air, please fly safely.
1: To listen or watch more episodes of this show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com, the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel, or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. To contact John and Greg about the show, send them an email at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. And remember, for aviation insurance needs, contact Avemco Insurance at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Mention Flight Safety Detectives and receive a 5% discount. Thanks for listening to the Flight Safety Detectives and remember to always fly safe.